Today on the Movement of Color podcast, we are going to discuss the Chicago Teachers Union strike. They went on strike. Kinzo Sabata is going to give us all the details. Also, we're going to continue our conversation about people of color in rock spaces. My name is Brandon Payton Creel, and uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Movement underscore color. Here's our first little bit. It's about the Chicago's Teachers Union. They're on a strike right now as of today. Today being October 17th, 2019. Uh, well, where we are right now is um, we're still waiting on a serious proposal uh, from the Board of Education that includes uh, additional nurses, additional uh, school psych- psychologists, librarians, counselors, um, and more staff that we need to have um, that work with probably really our most vulnerable students. Um, we have a shortage in Chicago, and um, you know one example is at my school and at many schools, uh, we share a school nurse with three, four, sometimes five other schools where like we'll we'll see a nurse maybe once um, a week. So like if a student is sick one day, um, they have to wait another day um, to to be treated. And um, it just hasn't, this just doesn't work at all. And our students deserve better than that. Um, So we're um, right now waiting for that proposal to come in. Uh, We set, well, we voted to strike, um, to authorize a strike if need be. Uh, A few weeks ago, we. We um, took a vote for to strike, uh, and the strike authorization vote was 94%. So there's a lot of solidarity and a lot of um, enthusiasm behind this. Um, and then, you know, we just this week announced that um, we voted, and uh, our strike date's going to be October 17th. Uh, so unless a contract um, proposal comes our way that we find um, acceptable for our students, Um, that's the day we're going to go on strike. And it's not just the teachers. Um, Within the Chicago Teachers Union, we also have librarians and other clinicians like counselors and um, teaching assistants as well. Um, But also, uh, we are going to be possibly joined on the line by uh, some of the teacher's aides from SEIU Local 73 who also work in Chicago public school buildings. Um, In addition to that, uh, the park districts their union has um, announced um, the same strike date. So uh, we really have some unity around you know, the public workers of Chicago. Um, we've been given you know, a raw deal from uh, Lori Lightfoot, who's our new mayor. Um, she was someone who campaigned on increasing the number of staff in school. Um, she campaigned on improving schools, 
um, and really looking out for students. And we're not seeing that right now. We're seeing more of the same. In fact, um, even though Lori Lightfoot, our new mayor, um, has a very different public persona than our previous mayor, uh, Rahm Emanuel, she has retained the same uh, legal staff that both um, Rahm Emanuel and Mayor Daley had. So the people we're negotiating with at the table haven't really changed. Um, in fact, the lead counsel is the exact same person, this guy Jim Franzik. And um, his tactics are, are the same as they've always been. You know, he's there to um, cut costs, to um, make sure that the mayor um, gets everything they want out of the contract, um, and not there for the students. Um, and that's why, you know, the CTU, uh, our side, we, we make sure that, you know, the rank and file members, the people who work with students every day, are represented at the table. So we have a 45-member negotiating team um, that sits behind our our table team, the people who negotiate the contract directly with the Board of Ed. Um, I'm on the rank and file team. Um, I represent uh, high school teachers. Um, there are a few other high school teachers on the team, as well as um, other kind of job titles and elementary teachers, um, special education teachers. Um, we really want to make sure that there's diverse representation there because we all, you know, school occurs to us all differently and we see things that are different than others. Elementary schools, you know, there's this um, long-standing problem that uh, the teachers just never get a chance to go to the bathroom. Um, high schools are a little different. You know, we have planning periods. We have colleagues who can cover classes. Sometimes we have to go to the bathroom, but that's just one example. But there's a lot of um, intricacies to all the different jobs that we do. And we make sure that, you know, we're represented in negotiations. Um, so right now, um, you know, what have we seen so far is we had a, during our, the week of our strike votes, um, Senator Bernie Sanders came out and he rallied with us. Uh, one of the really cool things that he did was um, he met with the bargaining team, uh, with us and then the bargaining team from, from SEIU and from some other unions, um, and gave us like a pep talk ahead of time about how uh, we are the lifeblood of Chicago, the public workers, and how you know the city can't run without us and we deserve a good contract and that he knows that we're fighting for our students. Um, so that was really um just uh, exhilarating to have him do that. And then after that, he spoke at the big rally um, where we had thousands of members, uh, to, uh, all in unity, um, ready to, to go uh, to strike if necessary. I was surprised. Um, I was really shocked, but very pleasantly shocked that, that he came all the way out here. Um, it really kind of shows where he's coming from, the fact that he used that opportunity to, um, to rally with us and not just ask us for votes. <laughs> It's really hard to say if we're going to come to agreement before the strike date, because this is a new mayor we're um, working with. Even though her table team is the same, um, it's a little unpredictable. The last real strike we had was seven years ago. That was the 2012 
strike that lasted about seven days. Um, and then before that was 25 years before. Um, so these were all under different mayors. And Lori Lightfoot hasn't really shown any signs that she's willing to compromise. In fact, she kind of dug in her heels a little deeper um, just in the past few days, saying that our contract fight is about political retribution, which is totally untrue. Um, and that um, she said that she doesn't want to pay us for um, the days, or she doesn't want us to make up the days that we go on strike if we were to go on strike, um, which would be really bad because there is a threshold we have to reach as far as um, instructional hours and, or else we lose state funding. So she would really be cutting off her nose uh, to spite her face if she were to do that. Are you guys prepared for a prolonged strike period if you don't make contract? We are. Uh, right now, we're um, preparing. Uh, we're having contract action teams in every school discussing what the strike is going to look like because schools are unique, even though we are um, all working in unity. Um, different parts of the city are different. So um, every school has its own contract action team. And uh, like today, um, some students, at, I'm sorry, some teachers at my school were leafleting um, people outside the Starbucks by us uh, about our contract demands and about why we are where we are, why we might have to fight. Um, so we're ramping things up. Uh, there are a lot of members who are maybe new to the profession or new to activism who are learning how to organize now and are being active on these teams. Uh, we also have a lot of support. Um, one thing that makes 2019 very different than 2012 was we have this big invigorated left. Like in Chicago, um, we have the United Working Families, um, which is not quite affiliated with the Working Families Party, but it's like kind of a local version of that. Um, we have the Democratic Socialists of America. DSA has been very involved in organizing community around supporting the strike. I know that there have been um, canvases of local businesses um, to both put signs in the window saying we support teachers, um, but also asking restaurants to donate food for both students and um, teachers on the line if that were to happen. Because for a lot of students, like that school meal is, is pretty critical for their day. Cool. So a little bit of mutual aid action going on with uh, striking support. Yeah, um, it's been really great. Like. Uh, People are willing to pitch in. People understand that the schools are important, important parts of the community. And, um, you know, I, I think we're going to see a lot of that, that mutual aid, that's people taking care of each other. You know, it's been a while since we've been on strike. And strikes um, are really just any kind of difficult contract campaign that requires a lot of organization tends to build the union. I'm definitely seeing that now. Like uh, my school, we had a bunch of brand new teachers this year, uh, like first year, second year, third year teachers uh, who are all just new to the school. And, um, you know, also some teachers that just weren't that into the union um, for one way or another, not necessarily anti-union. Like I, I have not seen that at my school, but um, it wasn't a big part of their lives. And um, we started with wearing red shirts on Fridays just to kind of gauge interest. And at first that was kind of low. 
Um, and then, you know, today was a Friday and everyone was in red. You know, I couldn't find a teacher who wasn't uh, first year teachers and everyone there were buying teacher buying CTU shirts or wearing, you know, their own um, homemade red solidarity shirts. Um, so I'm definitely seeing people more clued into the union. Uh, I think that this is definitely an opportunity, though, for further radicalization. You know, once people feel that power of collective action, you know, we have to build on education there. We can't just say, okay, we struck, we got a good contract, now it's over. You know, there has to be another next step with some political education around, you know, why, um, you know, why did we have to fight such a nasty fight? What is neoliberalism? You know, what are some of our best um, options for fighting it? So I think there's a lot of opportunity. Uh, right now, we're kind of building the base. the things, um, I mean, this is a little bit aside, but I feel like if we are to go on on strike, whether it's a good, whether we win it or not, uh, I feel like we will, but um, this will be Lori Lightfoot's one term. Like, she was, she's untested. Um, she, you know, she'd never been in elected office before. Um, she barely eked out um, a victory in the first election, made it into the runoff, and then um, she ran against Tony Preckwinkle, who was someone who had a lot of baggage. She's someone who was seen as being very close to the Chicago machine, uh, particularly Ed Burke, who's the most corrupt uh, <laughs> alderman in Chicago. Um, that was used against her, and that you know led to Lori Lightfoot's um, landslide. Uh, but wasn't there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm, I would say, around her. She wasn't popular from the from the get go. People didn't know who she was. Um, but she became the the, the non-machine candidate. Um, so I, w I would definitely think that, you know, it's in her best interest to negotiate with us fairly and openly and transparently, um, give the students what they need, um, and then settle this without a strike. And, you know, I could see her becoming a very popular mayor doing that. Um, strike, you know, what, however it turns out, you know, it's a big inconvenience for people in the city. Um, I feel like it's worth it, but at the same time, you know, it's a, it's a time when like parents need to find um, childcare. Um, it halts a lot of things. It delays the school year. And that's something that people are going to remember that she forced us to do. Um, as far as like, you know, building the left, um, this has been incredible um, political education for a lot of the new uh, like DSA members and a lot of the new socialists in Chicago. Um, a lot of folks uh, don't remember seven years ago because, you know, either they're really young or just, you know, just in the last few years got involved in the left. Um, so people have been really taken upon themselves to, to do organizing around this. And we're doing study groups around it as well to make sure we're building in political education. Um, so I think this has this great opportunity um, to turn, you know, very idealistic people into like strong um, militant organizers. Oh, well, my final thought. Um, basically that uh, 
the, the 2012 strike was this incredible experience. It was groundbreaking. Um, it definitely left the city in a better place than it was prior to the strike. But what we're seeing now, um, and I think this is something that I really want to highlight when I talk to people, is that you know this is the struggle is constant. We don't, we can't just you know wipe our hands, you know, or um, we can't just wash our hands and say like the, our union is radical now. We have this good contract, you know. We hired, we um, elected some socialists to city hall. Um, all those things are good, but there is constant tension that we have to agitate around um, because of the fact that. You know, we had this anti-machine sentiment in the city, which was really great, but unfortunately, all that political power went to Lori Lightfoot, who's showing herself to be very similar to Rahm. Um, so I feel like uh, we are in a position right now where we can re totally remake the city, and uh, the strike would be a great opportunity for that. definitely see as a musician the crowd you know coloring up a little bit more as um as i've gotten older compared mm -hmm. to when i was um a 13 year old and somehow i found myself at an evanescence concert because like i had a friend who's like yo this band's really cool i got an extra ticket brandon where you go and, well we love amy lee she is a female powerhouse yeah and you know hey they love the smashing pumpkins so they did smashing pumpkin covers and that was cool yeah. um and at that time it was i was in madison wisconsin and i made a visual count of how many people i've seen with dark skin there mm -hmm. it was about 12 of us out of like oh, you God. know a couple thousand but i was like all right that's uh, more than yeah, I expected. You, you mentioned Smashing Pumpkins. We have Darcy Gretzky in Smashing Pumpkins, another woman. Yeah. Yeah, she's dope. But again, it's like, and no hate to these women. You know what I mean? These are badass women. I seriously love Darcy and Amy Lee. But um, I, I think it, it just keeps painting the picture of what I'm saying, which is like every badass woman in the punk and rock and roll scene, it's white women. And I'm just like, I'm. you can't tell me women of color are not playing punk music you can't tell me that they're there but it's up to us as a fan base to go find them and elevate them yeah and i agree with you and the problem with that is because it's a little bit harder because they're pushed to the margins because of you know who's booking the shows yeah who's um putting the money behind their records or whatever. A lot of shitty bands get put on and then you're like, Oh God. Yeah. I, I, I can't, I can't, I can't support shitty music. I just, no matter what color you are. Yeah. I feel that. I feel that. I feel that, which is why. And I totally agree with you because there are, Listen, we can't just like give the stage to every guy with a guitar. Like, like like we were talking about before we started, I currently have three guitars sitting in my corner, um, and I'm not good at them. 
So if anybody gave me the stage to play guitar for the sake of being a brown woman, then I would be like, give it to someone else. <laughs> Believe me. But um, it's just, I know that they're there. Like I, like Quantum Split is one that that's so awesome. Um, Sarah Pass is another awesome metal band here in, in the city. Um, they're all people of color too, all friends of mine. Uh, we have Rebelmatic, uh, crazy punk band, all black guys. So they're there, you know, and, and it's just, it's so crazy to me because there are, um, sp- and, and, you know, I think what I'm about to talk about sort of, um, touches upon like the politics of, of the music scene. Um, there are folks who will put on shows and not uplift um, you know, bands of color, which is why I think there definitely needs to be um, an active and vocal solidarity among like punks of color and rockers of color, because listen, we've got to do it for ourselves. Like, why don't we get together and start organizing our own damn fests? Like Afropunk, right? Afropunk didn't yeah. happen last weekend. And it was dope. And it always is because these are black people doing it for themselves. And it's, fucking sick and guess what you got white people there too because <laughs> yeah. good music is gonna sell um and i think that that's what it's about um we, we got we got to get that going let's do that <laughs> yeah i agree um funny enough in wisconsin in wisconsin dells which is like a rural part of the state um they have a festival called los dells mm-hmm. and it's all like rock and espanol like Latinx kind of happening in the middle of like rural Wisconsin. And I think this is like their third year doing that. Um, But I could, I could say personally under the old model, I had a, I had a band that was pretty cool in like 2008. Yeah. And I think if I wasn't in the skin that I'm in, Mm -hmm. if I was, I was a skinny black kid, if I was a skinny white kid, Somebody would throw me some money. Yeah. And we were like interracial, intergender, and it had a kind of a cool sound, you know. It was like definitely some Smith's influence, but if Smith's cool. met with, you know, some Prince aesthetics. <laughs> I love that. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's it was an interesting time. It was an interesting experience. But I, I, I pivot. Here's one thing that I think it'll be interesting to talk about. Mm-hmm. Let's hear it. Being a PLC in rock spaces and how that interacts with dating. Oh my God. That is a conversation. And we'll throw one more in there. Mm-hmm. Um, being a political organizer too. Okay. Right? Because um, in that's like two worlds because on one end um, in political circles, there is a lot of, I mean, there's people from all shades and all backgrounds and all genders. And it's, it's wonderful because you have these like-minded people who share what's most, most important to you in dating, which is core principles um, and, and views of the world. Um, And so there's no problem there. But at the end of the day, when we're not organizing, you know, 23 hours of the day and we just want to have fun and rock out, we go to these shows and it's a bunch of white people. And that's okay. Like, obviously, nobody's saying there's 
listen, like, like, not that we have to say it, it should be assumed, but there's nothing wrong with white people unless you're a bigoted racist. Yeah. The problem is, though, is that some of these scenes do invite those folks. Like, yeah. I mean, let's talk about the metal scene. I don't know about the metal scene in Milwaukee, but here in New York, like, we just had a bunch of beats because there is a guy who was actively supporting Nazi Norwegian black metal bands. And people are like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? <laughs> so so that's what I mean by, like, you can't just assume that these folks in these particular genres and these specific circles, because so so many of those people are adjacent to really, really problematic um, politics, like like being a Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, it's so hard. It's so hard because you're sort of navigating two worlds. How do you feel? Well, in Milwaukee, at one point, they had a really robust metal scene. Like, Milwaukee's Metal Fest was, like, a big fucking deal until that kind of shut down. But, um... Yeah, that's sad. Yeah. But it's interesting. A lot of people, even people, like, I would say, now they consider they're lefties, mm -hmm. politically, that are in the scene. When it comes to the music, they're like, you know, Brazil is a sick fucker. That Varg's guy, you know, from, you know, neo-Nazi, yeah. church-burning, Norwegian, yeah. kill-my-friend, you know, yeah. sociopath. But they're like, this album still rocks. And yeah, it still slaps. Yeah. yeah. And I can't, I can't disagree with it. When I listen to it, like, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, fortunately, I don't really... His words are just death and destruction and gore anyway. You know, so I guess that's fine, separating the man from the art. Do you think that's possible, though? Do you think it's possible to separate the man from the art or the woman from the art when it's an active assault at your existence? Because I have a really hard time with that, you know? Because I think that, like, especially in metal, which is a genre that I love so much, there's a lot of, um, like, let's take, let's take Slayer for example, right? Like they're like, they're very, very gory and violent lyrics, right? But none of them are like actual murderers that are going to go out and kill people from what I know. Yeah. Okay. By the way, sidebar, Terry King, love him. His wife, Alicia King is half Pakistani. So she is an intersectional feminist woman of color and she's so dope. She has two, um, Slayer logos underneath, tattooed underneath her armpits. Wow. So, uh, she's dope. I just had to give her a shout out because any woman of color in metal, I am going to shout out. But yeah. nevertheless, um, so, so they're Slayer, right? And then you have other neo-Nazi bands who talk about like racial cleansing, who you will also see at, um, neo-Nazi rallies. So that is where I cannot separate the man from the music because like, just because the riff is good doesn't mean this guy isn't actually engaging in active violence that is an assault on my personhood you know like at that point it's no no longer creative imagery it's real life violence that i cannot support i can't no that's fine i i agree with you on that that's like if you're making hate metal in something to promote your you know white supremacist views I don't got time for that right. but, I, but i'm guessing like, all right, Charles Manson. Mm -hmm. Look at your game girl is an awesome song. <laughs> okay, Charlie's crazy. 
Charlie may have some nationalist Nazi opinions. Right. He has a bunch of weird shit going on. Yeah. But look at your game girl is still great. And look at your right. game girl had nothing to do with being a Nazi. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's where I'm like, okay, Charlie, I'm sorry, man. You're locked up for a reason. I'm glad uh-huh. they didn't kill you. But, you know, you you stay there. Yeah. I'm still going to enjoy it. over here. Yeah, exactly. I'm still going to enjoy it. Look at your game girl. Yeah, but you know, that blurred line actually ties back to the dating thing because there are some, like, let's take, um, let's take white fans, right? And this could be like a romantic relationship or even just a friendship relationship. Um, if I have a white partner who is saying to me, I can overlook the racism of this person because the song slaps, I wonder if they can overlook racism that's imposed onto me because it's their friend. You see where that line is really blurred? Yeah. That's really hard. So that's why, like, I mean, listen, I have super, super dope white friends in the scene. And I've I've had men in the scene who have stood up for me when, you know, their guy friends are being really, really weird and creepy and, like, sexually harassing women. You know, they're like, dude, that's good. You're good. And not that I can't stand up for myself, but it's always important to see male allies being vocal and putting their brothers in line um, and saying, yeah, no, this tour is, is done because you are a convicted rapist. Like that is the active, um, that's how, that's, that, that is how active white allies should be. Right. But then when we talk about like um, neo-Nazi metal or hate metal and, and, you know, punk, like, uh, like, G.G. Allen sort of fucking punk like that's where things get dangerous because uh, I, I listen I'm not like a pro-censorship sort of person but at what point does you overlooking the violence that a person clearly harbors and manifests in their music at one point does that become not okay does it ever become not okay uh, it's a weird line it's a weird line it's a weird line but I think if you have any kind of moral compass, it's an easy one to navigate, you know. But that's really, it's it, it should be, but what we should understand, not only as rockers of color, but people of color, is that for white people, they have not been, they don't have the history, or a lot of them don't have the history of colonization that we have yeah. that makes these things a lot more threatening to us, you know, like... And listen, it's just a fact of life that um, white people are going to, they're going to need, they're going to need to be taught the same way that men are going to need to be taught. Any man, doesn't matter how polite and how much of a gentleman he is because of the fact that men are raised under patriarchy, right? That is the social conditioning. Similarly, um, white people are raised with the social conditioning of whiteness and America first, America first idea. So they don't really have to think about too actively the 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 history of colonization, the history of military violence, the history of fascism. So that's why like the moral compass thing sort of falls on deaf ears here because like not to say that they don't have a moral compass. Obviously, I'm not saying that, but it takes developing a moral compass and then you reach a point where it's like does that person want to develop their moral compass or would they rather jam to this really cool Nazi riff? <laughs> yeah, I get I get yeah. what you're saying. It's like you need to reprogram. 
Yeah, sort of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we all need reprogramming. I mean, that's just the the nature of the systems, oppressive systems we've been raised under. All right, I want to take some time. I want to tell you the story. Okay. I gave you a preload to it earlier. Okay. It's the Montana story. Yes, the Montana story. Hit me with it. So, my band at the time, it was a band called, I was in Union Pulse. I was a touring bass player for them. Cool. Um, old country band. Okay. And um, we opened for a band called the Dead String Brothers in Bozeman, Montana. Okay. At a place called the Filling Station. Mm-hmm. And I walk in, it's about six in the afternoon, and I'm the last one on my band getting out of the van. Um, I'm in a band with two white guys. Mm-hmm. And I'm carrying my bass. And they go on through and they go on into the venue. But by the bar, an older white man stops. He says, Hey, you. And I'm looking around. <laughs> and it can only be me. Then he opens up with, you know, like, yes. He opens up with, do you know what I call Barack Obama? Oh, no. And I'm in, like, oh, shit, I'm in Montana. Not <laughs> not now. I got to fucking play a show in a couple hours. And I'm like, What? I call him my president. How you doing? My name oh is Steve. My. <laughs> so he totally fakes me out, but he's completely wasted, right? Totally okay. been overserved. Okay. And, you know, I get this background story. He has to casually drop that his best friend in Vietnam was black and blah, blah, blah. You know, got that story. And, you know, he just keeps rambling on. And he's like, why are you, why are you in Montana? These white people don't appreciate you. You need to just get the hell out of Montana. And I'm just, he just went on like that. He's giving you insider advice, man. Get out of Montana. Apparently, I need to get out of Montana. So I get background on him. He was a former lawyer that drank a little too much, um, got a DUI, decided to represent himself in court drunk, and got disbarred and his family left him. Oh, my God, and now he's Yeah, and now he's like the town drunk. Um, so he's just a character, just, you know, whatever. He's that guy in the bar. He's a loud sure. asshole in the bar. Sure. He starts harassing the band a little bit um, on stage, the Dead String Brothers, because they're all, mm-hmm. like, long-haired dudes from England. He's like, hey, English. And he starts calling them English for some reason. <laughs> like, hey, English. Hey, English. Can you play some Beatles? Come on, play some Beatles. Come oh, on. And he's like standing no. up in, while they're on stage sound chest, uh, testing. Little did he know, my guitarist just happened to put his amp about three feet behind him. It was a combo, so a little short amp. Mm-hmm. And as he's heckling, like, play some Beatles, long hair. You know, he, okay. he flips over the amp because he steps backwards. He flips over the amp and cracks his head against the table. And then he's just motionless. Oh, my God. And then the bartenders are like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. This is this ain't good. Oh, my God. So they all rush he over to him. represent himself this time. Yeah. And then they try to pick him up, try to get him to come to. Then finally you hear a groan. Oh, and then one of the bartenders does a beeline towards the, a trash can and starts dry heaving. 
Yeah, what's I had happening this, here? Yes, I had that same feeling. Like, what is happening here? And he's like, oh, oh, and I'm like, dude, what happened? He shit himself. He oh. shit himself. So when he cracked his head and went unconscious, he relieved his bowels in the bar. So what do you think happened next? So I'm thinking that he woke up and he didn't even realize that he shit himself. And then he was like, play some, play the Beatles, play the Beatles. I don't know. <laughs> play your campaign song, Obama. You're pretty close. You're pretty close. Because they're like, oh, yo, Steve, you got you to gotta get out of here, man. Like, we overserved you. That's our bad. But we called the cab. You cracked your shit. You're bleeding. Oh, my God. And he's like, no, no. He refused the cab. He stayed at the bar for another three, four hours. And by this time, why would they leave it? Why would they let him do that? No way. No way if I were working at a bar would I let this man who has just injured himself and released himself completely in my bar for three more hours. He needs to go. You don't need to go home, but you need to get the hell out of here, dude. And I mean, he was pretty chill, except for he was a shitty smelling and is talking to the ladies all night. Oof, yes, that's that'll do it for me. That'll do it. (laughs) And eventually he left. He left before the show. He missed the show, unfortunately. Um, But that's my Bozeman story. Jesus. Well, you know what? Even though he was a little shitty... He was not a racist. Yes. <laughs> you can kick me off the podcast now for that terrible job. No, it was great. It was great. Hey, he wasn't a racist. And that is good. That yeah. is a good that is a good feeling to have, especially when you are navigating rooms where you need to count how many ground faces there are. Alright gang, we've reached the conclusion of our wonderful show today. Hopefully you enjoyed it. And I just want to remind you, support us on Patreon, patreon.com backslash movement of color. Again, my name is Brandon Peyton Carrillo. And until next time, adios. Adios.